Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast making waves on the issues that matter to friends of the sea. I'm Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. In our previous episodes, we discussed if we have time to save the seas and whether it's okay to eat fish if you love the ocean. We also heard from Jane Goodall and Luc Jacquet about the sea animals that they love the best. And at the end of this episode, ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano will reveal his ocean favourite. Today, we're going to be talking about the controversial topic of deep sea mining. First, what is the deep sea exactly? We asked Jessica Battle from conservation organisation WWF to describe what's down there. So the deep sea is the largest habitat living space on our planet. It's everything below 200 metres in the ocean. Most of it is pitch black. You need, if you go down there and you go down there with light, you will obviously find color, bright orange, bright blue, bright pink, all kinds of colors. But for us, to our naked eye, it is pitch black. So the animals that live down there, they communicate through sound and through emitting light. So they produce their own light to communicate with each other and to see their prey and also to hide. And a lot of the animals who live down there are actually almost totally translucent. You can't see them. And they are the basis of the entire food chain of the ocean. The seafloor has reserves of minerals in seamounts and nodules that proponents say are needed to make the batteries and electronics of the green transition. Conservationists argue mining the seafloor will do irreversible damage to a pristine and unexplored environment, and that taking a circular economy approach means we don't really need all the cobalt, manganese and other elements to be found there. On the 7th of September this year, the sector took a jump forwards as a leading firm in the fields called The Metals Company announced that it was starting a deep-sea mining trial in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. News that the UN's International Seabed Authority had authorised the expedition came as a surprise, and there's now a possibility that commercial mining could begin in earnest by 2024, despite widespread calls for a moratorium. So it's a good time to take a step back with a conversation we recorded before that news was announced to give you what I hope is a broad view of this rapidly emerging sector with our two guests – Joining me are Dr. Pedro Ribeiro, a Portuguese ecologist from the University of Bergen in Norway, who investigates human impacts in the deep sea, including seabed mining. Hello, Pedro. Hello, Jeremy. And from Australia, we're joined by Rene Grogan, Chief Sustainability Officer at a deep sea mining company called Impossible Mining. Hello, Rene. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to see you. Rene, you come from a background in what you might call old-fashioned hole-in-the-ground mining. Is deep-sea mining radically different in terms of what we're aiming to do and in terms of what we're aiming to extract from the Earth? It could be. I guess from an engineering and a geological perspective, some deep-sea ocean resources are very different terrestrial resources. 
things like polymetallic nodules are very different to anything you find on land. Alternatively, some of the seafloor resources like seafloor massive sulfides are quite similar geologically to volcanic massive sulfide deposits on land. So there are some things that are different and some that are the same. In terms of the engineering, obviously getting things from the ocean floor um, up to the vessel at the sea surface is quite a different challenge to what we see in terrestrial mining. And then I guess the last thing that's quite interesting and very topical is around understanding, assessing and managing the impacts of deep sea mining, which have the potential to be quite significant and also I think have the potential to be much larger in scope than what we see in terrestrial mining. And this is something that definitely should give us pause for thought. Pedro, you're a marine biologist with a special interest in in sea mounds. Honestly, what was your first reaction when you actually heard about deep sea mining? What came to mind? Well, a few years ago, it was still in the realm of science fiction, meaning that the environment is so uh, hostile. Uh, We are talking about extreme pressure. We are talking about low temperatures inaccessibility, these are remote areas. So my first impression was, to be completely honest, there is no chance that such an industry can be developed in in the time frame that is being suggested or promoted by certain companies that are interested in the minerals. Have you actually been to some of these locations yourself? Yes, I was fortunate to do some work in the nodule fields in the Clarion Clipter Zone back in 2015. I participated in a research cruise. Where is that? Well, that's in the Central Pacific. Let's say it's between Mexico and Hawaii. And it's an area that is millions of square meters in size and between four and a half and five and a half kilometers depth. So it's the abyssal plain where you have these polymetallic nodules that are just sitting on the seafloor. And that's what people want to mine. That is one of the resources, just like uh, René mentioned, we have different kinds of mineral resources in different environments. So, for instance, uh, here in the, in the Arctic Ocean or the Arctic Mid-Ocean Ridge, but also more generally on all the ocean ridges, you have polymetallic sulfides or massive seafloor sulfides that uh, are generated through circulation of seawater through the crust that is then ejected on these hydrothermal vents, these hot springs. And this water is loaded with minerals that are then precipitating around these hot vents. And they form over the years, over centuries sometimes, uh, they form large mounds that are rich in minerals, some of them commercially valuable. And then you also have on seamounts, ferromanganese crusts. And these crusts form in a process that in a way is similar to the polymetallic nodules, meaning that the metals slowly, slowly precipitate over millions of years on the flanks of seamounts. And they form a layer of a few centimeters on the flanks of seamounts. What's it like down there? I mean, are there animals around or is it really kind of a, like a desert? <laughs> Definitely not like a desert. There's specific fauna on all of these areas. So the, the deep sea is actually a, a highly diverse place. We characterize the deep sea as ocean below 200 meters depth. So from 200 meters down to 11,000 meters. Some of these animals 
are in fact endemic to their environment. These kind of animals that do not live elsewhere, they cannot live elsewhere. For instance, on polymetallic nodules, they are hard substrate growing or settled on abyssal plain, and they provide a vital habitat to many species, for instance, of corals and sponges that otherwise could not live there. So if the nodules are removed, you have this large amount of species that actually cannot settle there and they cannot persist there. Rene, maybe I can ask you, in simple terms, what is it we're actually going to get from these places? What are we going to get and what are we going to do with it? So as Pedro mentioned, the resources are all quite different. So the ones that we talk about are those that relate to energy production and those that relate to energy storage. So when you're looking at energy production, you use really large amounts of copper. And when you're looking at energy storage, you use things like nickel, cobalt and lithium. And when you think about particularly uh, cobalt as an example, if we looked at all of the terrestrial resources that we have for cobalt today, that is not enough to transition the United Kingdom alone to its electric vehicle targets. And then where the rest of the world gets its cobalt from becomes a question. So the grade and the quantity of the resource on the seafloor is what's driving this discussion. It's what's driving the race. And it's such an important and and tricky discussion because we all know that we want to transition away from fossil fuels. We want to produce solar power, wind power, electric vehicles, and we want to include that infrastructure in our economies in the next 10 years. That's the plus side. The minus side is that we simply do not have enough of these resources on land to transition us. And so we have to think differently. And that's where the seafloor resources come in. When I talk to people about deep sea mining around me, their knee-jerk reaction is that that sounds awful. You know, these are pristine environments. What are we doing going down there and wrecking them, you know, when we've wrecked so much on, on land? And then on the other side, of course, there's the argument that if you just look at the objects around you in this studio that I'm in now, but, you know, where you are as well, you know, in your kitchen, your car, you look at your phone, it was kind of dug out of the ground. So if it didn't come from an animal, it didn't come from from a plant, then it came out of a mine. And so we need those resources as well. And when I listen to the arguments on either side, I listen to the conservationists and the environmentalists and they sound very convincing. And then I'll listen to the deep sea miners and they sound very convincing too. And I'm completely kind of torn in two by this when I listen to you. I would agree with all of it, that it is a very emotive discussion, that your first reaction around deep sea mining is one of emotion, that this is something that we shouldn't allow to happen, or we shouldn't allow the seabed to be destroyed. And I also am a pragmatist and very much understand the resource requirements over the next few decades. Our company was formed on the back of those two concerns. And so we used that as our starting point. And we sat down and said, well, if we were going to engineer a new mining methodology, this should be where we start. How's it going to work then? So what we're designing is a fleet of underwater robotic vehicles or AUVs, and they are not tethered to the vessel. So they float or they swim independently and they go down to the seafloor and they don't touch the seafloor. So that's the first thing. They don't make contact with the seabed. They hover above it. Under the bottom of that robotic vehicle are a series of robotic arms, and they are designed to pick up polymetallic nodules, 
one by one. So to be very clear, this is a system for polymetallic nodule harvesting, not for any other resource. So these robotic arms are connected to a computer imaging system that identifies the nodules that have observable life growing on them. So the sea sponges, the sea corals, anything that's observable through the camera imaging system. And then those nodules are left behind. So they're not disturbed, they're left intact on the seafloor. As the nodules are picked up one by one, the AUV is also programmed to leave behind a certain percentage of nodules so that the habitat, that hard substrate habitat that Pedro was talking about, remains there on the seafloor. Now that number, the question of of what percent do we leave behind, is something that we're working with the scientists to understand. After listening to Renee's arguments, we wanted to know what a conservationist thinks about this concept of responsible deep-sea mining. So we asked Jessica Battle from WWF, who you heard at the start of the podcast. At this point of time, it doesn't really matter which technology we're talking about, because we first need to actually study the seafloor to understand what is down there in order to understand what any technology's impact would be. So it's too early to pronounce anything around any specific technology. What is absolutely clear is that the nodules that they are talking about, that many of the seabed miners who are actively promoting seabed mining at the moment, they're talking about polymetallic nodules on the seafloor. These nodules are not lying somehow in air, right? They're not floating around in air. They're actually on and in the sediment. And I don't know if you've ever put your hand down in a puddle of water in the forest, for example, where there is sediment, you just have to touch the slightest and the sediments come flying up and it becomes a whirl and it travels, right? So it is impossible to not have any impact or to, in isolation, pick up nodules. You can't do it, not with any technology without having any kind of impact. But the point is that all mining will have impact. Exactly how deep sea mining is going to be regulated and managed is still being decided. However, here in Europe, Norway stands out as a country whose government is keen to make this new industry a reality. Pedro, what's happening in Norway? What kinds of technologies are they considering in terms of deep sea mining? Here in Norway, there is, of course, also a big concern about potential environmental impact. The ocean industry in Norway is quite active, is is extremely active and has a background, a track record also from the oil and gas industry. And one of the ideas is to bring that know-how into developing uh, machinery, technology and operations that minimize uh, the environmental footprint. The image that we have in our mind is that you're going to send a big machine down there that's just going to rattle along the seafloor and pick these things up. Well, the concept has to be around drilling because these are solid resources that cannot be picked up as with the polymetallic nodules. So the nodules are small and the other resources are actually attached to the seafloor. So these have to be drilled. Precautions and measures have to be put in place to minimize the generation of this plume. Not only the plume that is generated during the drilling and the recovery of the material, but also when when everything is processed at the surface, And there is eventually a discharge of what is rejected back to the water column. That sounds horribly messy, doesn't it? Well, it sounds horribly messy and could be unless the right technology is developed. But you've still basically gone and completely destroyed this pristine habitat. 
Well, if mining of sulfides and mining of manganese crust and also mining of polymetallic nodules occurs, the most obvious impact is the destruction of the habitat that is being mined. What can be done is to minimize the indirect impacts caused by the plumes, as I said, caused by the noise and the footprint of the machinery on the seafloor, and also by establishing areas where mining does not take place, either within explorations and around exploration. So to create some sort of a refuge of the typical marine fauna that is associated with these mineral deposits. That idea of protecting certain areas from mining is not enough for some of the people I spoke to. Like many environmental organisations, WWF is calling for a moratorium on deep-sea mining. Here's Jessica Battle again. We know hardly anything about the deep sea and it is impossible at this point with that knowledge that we have today to make any decisions based on evidence about deep sea mining, whether it can go ahead or not. That is one reason why we're calling for a moratorium in order to allow that science to take place. So the ideal scenario for deep sea mining is that the processes that have been put in place at the international level are slowed down. So we have the time to know what is in the deep sea and if we actually need these resources in the longer term. Because once the International Sea the Bed Authority opens up seabed mining for one or two companies, we fear it's going to be impossible to close the deep sea to mining again. Some big companies, some large car manufacturers, some technology companies have said that they will not source minerals from the seabed, that they won't use the products of deep sea mining. When you hear that, do you actually think that's at all credible? Could they actually do that and say, no, that cobalt came from a sea mound somewhere, I'm not going to use it? Or is it just kind of greenwashing? So when you talk about where you source your metals from, whether you should say, oh, we're not going to take cobalt from the seafloor, when in fact your cobalt is coming from a place that is rife with both environmental and social challenges. I think the real critical issue is about can we develop a standard that raises the bar for all and can we develop a certification and monitoring and auditing process that actually allows you to know where your metals came from? That's the real question. And my vision for that is that it would become in time an independent certification process much like we have organic food or fair trade cotton and coffee, where it has a brand that consumers trust and that has a third-party arm's-length certification process that would enable that trust to be valid. And so when you're buying your electric vehicle in 10 years' time, you could buy an electric vehicle that's made with responsible metals. Quite a lot of countries, or the European Union, for example, are kind of taking a wait-and-see, slightly-sit-on-the-fence approach on this. Pedro, what, what's your view on what Europe is doing outside Norway when you look to Brussels, when you look to other European countries? And what do you make of their position? I think there is, of course, the awareness that there are vast mineral resources that are untapped on the seafloor. And this could be an alternative to land-based mining, which comes with also all sorts of impacts. So in, the, in that way, I believe that the policy would be to assess the possibility of 
sourcing these raw materials in a responsible and sustainable way. So there has to be this balance. Do you think that we're going to see a kind of gold rush? Well, I hope not. <laughs> Meaning that we have to be responsible in the way that the raw materials are obtained. And there's definitely not enough information to certify, let's say, that these raw materials were obtained sustainably because the technology the technology is not there and the, the environmental information is not there. So it will take a while. I think I think this will be a natural process. It will naturally take time. So we will at some point realize that these are not realistic timelines. Renee, what what are your thoughts on that? Are we kind of on the brink of a new gold rush? I think there is certainly a sense of urgency if you look at the supply and demand issues. If you look at something like organic food, if you're a tomato farmer and your consumers don't want organic tomatoes, then you're not going to put the extra time and effort and cost into growing organic tomatoes because you don't have a market for it. So if we create a market for responsible metals, then mining companies will have to deliver them and they will see a value in delivering them. And that's what it's all about. It's about creating a market for something that is responsible instead of creating a market just for metal. Renee and Pedro, thanks very much for being with us in this conversation about the complex topic of deep sea mining. Fascinating conversation. And it'll be really interesting to see how this develops over the next couple of years, I think. What's it like to look down at our blue planet from space? Today's guest for Ocean Favourites is better known for spacewalking than scuba diving, but like most astronauts, he has a passion for our planet and its oceans. So I have a chance to look down and see some, some places that just look astounding from space. The Caribbean, the reason why we say Caribbean blue, because it's a blue like none other. Some places on the coast of Africa have this gold sand that turns into pink and then you see the waves crashing and it's just, it takes your breath away. The beauty is astounding. That was ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano and this is his charming story about how he chose his favourite ocean animal. I was born on an island and I grew up on an island. I'm from Sicily specifically from the city of Catania, which is right on the water. And I grew up going to school and seeing the Mediterranean Sea every day. So I try to get into salt water as often as I can. But last summer I spent uh, three weeks in Sardinia and I would swim three to five kilometers almost every day in, in, the, in the beautiful water of Sardinia. It's my, my zen place, you know? I don't do yoga, I cannot sit still, but I can, I can run or swim for a long time just getting together with myself and the, and the environment. And uh, I'm gonna pick an animal that may or may not be one of the favorites, but I'm gonna choose the manatee, or actually, more specifically, the dugongo, which is a type of uh, manatee which lives in the Red Sea. The dugongo is a, is a sea mammal and it doesn't eat fish, it eats vegetables. And the reason why I'm picking the dugongo is because it's connected to an incredible story. I was in the Red Sea on vacation and I was 
diving almost every day in a location called Marsa, um, beautiful, beautiful little bay. But specifically, this area is famous for dugongos because underwater, it looks like a prairie. And the dugongo is also known as the sea cow because that's what they do. They just go underwater and they, they graze the, the seaweed. I spent probably an hour and a half, two hours, just underwater, just looking for dugongos. And I found turtles, lots of different fish, but no dugongos. We were a little bit sad that we didn't, we didn't get to meet them. And so we got back on the boat to go back to where we started. When the crew on the boat started yelling, dugongo, dugongo, and sure enough, halfway back to the pier, there was a single solitary dugongo, probably female, not too big, just swimming. And I, you know, I didn't even ask permission. I didn't say anything. I just grabbed my mask and ran and jumped off the boat. And for 10 minutes, I just swam along. She was just curious. She just looked at me and, you know, I was like, well, that's weird. And just kept swimming. And I kept swimming next to her. And that specific moment, it felt so peaceful. It just felt very, very peaceful. It, it felt like that Dugongo had so many stories to tell, and they would be very bucolic. You know, the equivalent would be talking to a very old farmer that had lived peacefully all his life. And uh, that Dugongo was like Zen. <laughs> it was like a moment of, of perfect uh, yin and yang, you know, just peace, swimming, checking me out, me checking her out and going our own way. The Ocean Calls podcast is created by ocean lovers here at Euronews for ocean fans around the world. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is produced by my colleagues Naira Dablashian and Natalia Olsner. Editing is by Laurie Martinez, Chiara Santella and Luis Lopez from Studio Ochenta. The theme music is by Gabriel Del Masso. Our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. For more on Rene Grogan's company, go to impossibleminingcom and Pedro Ribeiro's website is ecosafe.w.uib.no. And I recommend following Luca Parmitano on Twitter on at astro underscore Luca. The podcast Ocean Calls is made possible by the European Commission's DG Mare. You can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And if you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating, comment and tell your friends. Your help makes spreading the word about the ocean so much easier. And if you want our team to read your comments on social media, use the hashtag OceanCalls. If you're looking for something else to listen to, then check out another Euronews podcast called Cry Like a Boy, exploring centuries-old gender stereotypes and how men in some African countries are helping to fight them. For more information on Ocean Calls, go to our website, euronews.com. And a special shout-out to Ocean, a Euronews TV series created by our colleague Dennis Loctier, which is quite simply spellbinding. Have a look on euronews.com ocean and follow world news from a European perspective on euronews.com. Euronews.